You know, my, my church experience growing up might not be altogether different from what some of you are, are used to or from what you have seen or, or even thought about, perhaps. I would kind of go to church, and generally just my mother and I went to church together. My father only kind of turned out for holidays, and once my brother was confirmed, he never really went to church anymore. And so my mother and I would go to church, and kind of in a Hemrick family tradition, we were always running late. And so, you know, we would always kind of meander in the service, you know, kind of midway through that first hymn, you know, and kind of find a seat. And kind of the, uh, an interesting cycle developed, not every week, but most weeks that I can remember. You know, the, it was a liturgical church, so it was very measured. You know, in those churches where you can almost tell when the service is going to end based on where you're at in the service. Yeah, I, I always forget that. Sorry. Uh, um, yeah, you can be dismissed if you're in kindergarten through second grade. You can tell your teacher it was my fault. Um, so we would, you know, in a litur- liturgical church, you know, you can tell, oh, there's, there's one hymn left, or there's, you know, the pastor's going to give the benediction, whatever. You can know, you know how long the service is going to last. You can read it generally. And generally it would be, you know, the pastor would stand up to give the benediction. My mother would motion for me. We'd be out the pew, down the hall, and out of the parking lot as quick as anything. And, you know, as a kid, you know, you're... You never really understood why this was going on, but you kind of thought it must be a really good reason. You know, that we had some kind of special mission that forced us to get out of the church before anyone could, like, even see us, let alone shake our hand. And, you know, I would have a certain sense of satisfaction if, you know, as we were going down Main Street, I turned around once we were there and saw just the first, you know, people kind of inkling out the door. I'd be like, good, we succeeded, we won. Um... And some weeks, I don't know why, maybe we had something really important to do that particular Sunday. We wouldn't even wait for the benediction. It would be, you know, last stanza of the last hymn. You know, the choir's still moving around, you know, because they kind of go like this and they come up the center aisle. Or, no, down the center and then around the sides. And okay, that, as soon as they went out, we were right behind them. And, you know, kind of a sad thought, really, as much as it's a comical one, because we weren't alone. On any given Sunday, there would probably be, you know, four or five other families that, like us, had some super important mission that prompted them to, you know, leave the church so, you know, they, they, didn't, have, so they didn't have to shake the pastor's hand, didn't have to talk to anyone around the pews that lingered afterwards. Coffee hours right out. Didn't happen. And, it, and it's kind of sad because I think here we, we made time each and every week to go to church. We sat, I drew during the sermon. Um... We, you know, sing the songs up and down when you're supposed to, and yet we didn't have time to talk with all the people that we were doing this with. We didn't have time for that. And I never understood why as a kid. I'm persuaded now that even though I, you know, I wasn't a believer then, I, I certainly wasn't living as the body of Christ, and I definitely wasn't acting like a member of the body of Christ. And it's that issue that brings us to our text here this morning. I invite you to open up to Hebrews chapter 10. It's verse 1190 if you've got a pew Bible. And, and this is kind of a neat week. This is the last, we're take, last week we're on Hebrews for a while. We're going to take a break and uh, do a, another sermon series for six weeks and then come back to Hebrews. And this is kind of a neat text because it kind of reemphasizes a number of the things we've been talking about for the past few months, which Jeremy has given fine exposition to. And it uh, adds in a few new nuggets of truth for us, centered around this concept of community. So here we are, Hebrews chapters 10, starting in verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, 
by a new and a living way opened for us through the curtain that is His body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for He who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up the habit of meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. You know, there's um, text really is divided into two sections. You know, the first section is kind of this, again, the summary of a lot of the themes we've been talking about for the last few months. We, we see words like most holy place, great high priest, curtain. These are, these are things that have come up in texts before in, in an effort to remind believers and unbelievers alike of the kind of death that Jesus died to reconcile believers unto him, that they could have peace with God. And, and then the second section kind of you know, starts talking about responsibilities and the type of attitudes believers should have, the life they should live. So I think the, you know, the first section is kind of what I like to refer to as standing. It's the standing individual believers have together before God. And the second part is the responsibility that that standing requires. Let's talk about that more. If I could sum up this whole theme in one sentence that we see, it's that since we are the body of Christ, Let us live as the body of Christ. Emphasis on the word body. Since we are the body of Christ, let us live as the body of Christ. Standing. You know, our standing is, I think, how we we fit before God. Are we standing on kind of like this unsure, shaky, fearful, you know, footing? Or are we standing firm, confident, and bold before our Creator and Ruler? How do we stand before Him? The most holy place was that portion of the tabernacle the high priest alone was able to enter, and only once a year at that. Once a year, this guy is able to walk, just the high priest, into the most holy place. And the most holy place housed the Ark of the Covenant. And if, if you've read that section of the Old Testament, or if you've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know that you know on top of the Ark of the Covenant, you've got these two angels, and their wings are kind of spread up in such a way to form a seat or a throne upon which God might sit. And so once a year on the Day of Atonement, you know, as prescribed in the law, the high priest would enter in, he would make sacrifices for his sins and the sins of the people in God's presence. And there is this curtain that is separating that from the rest of the sanctuary. And a funny thing, kind of a tradition, it's not mandated in the Old Testament, but a funny tradition developed. Because even though this practice, again, of going in once he was mandated, the high priests started to get afraid. They started to get very afraid of what it was for them, sinful, fallible human being, to enter into the literal presence of a holy God. And, 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 they were, they, and their knees, I think, started to buckle, and they started to kind of wonder, what if God... What if his wrath would be aroused rightly by their sin and he would strike them down right there? And so this tradition develops where in the high priest, when he was going to go in on the Day of Atonement, he would take a rope and he'd wrap a rope, rope around himself and he'd tie a really strong knot and he'd leave the other end of the rope in the rest of the tabernacle. So that if he went in 
and God struck him down, his body wouldn't just lay there for 365 more days until the next high priest walked in, did what he had to do, and then brought the remains out. So it was kind of a witness if, you know, the next day they woke up and they said, oh, the rope's still there. Well, I guess we've got to drag Larry out. He didn't make it. Who wants to be high priest next year? They'd really be stepping forward, wouldn't they? Um, you know, this, this Hebrew mind may, may offend some of our, I think, modern cultural sensibilities, but this was reflective of the, the fearful standing they still had before God, the anxiety that they had. Sinners before a holy, righteous God. But this text here in Hebrews reminds us that Jesus, by His blood, has torn the curtain down. The death of Christ for sinful men and women has opened up, as the text says, a living way by which we can have peace with God. We are beckoned to come into the presence of God with what, what does the text say in verse 22? Full assurance. Full assurance. Then you and I tell you are supposed to be able to have this, this confidence in our walk with Christ that we don't have to tie some rope around ourselves, that we don't have to sit there with our knees buckling wondering what's going to happen, that we can walk with full assurance into the Creator and Ruler of all things because of this living way that He has opened up for all who would believe. It says in um, 1 John 1, it says, Therefore, if you confess your sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And I think we feel the weight of that text when we answer the question, what is Christ being faithful to? It says He'll forgive us because He's faithful and just. Well, is He faithful and just to you and me? We don't, we don't really deserve that. I mean, we don't, there, there, there's nothing of ourselves that we deserve or have a right to God to be faithful to us, to forgive us. It, it doesn't really make sense that he's, he's faithful, that He must forgive just because He's asked. Because all of a sudden there's some kind of principle that's above God. What's he faithful to? He's faithful to the blood of Christ. He's faithful to the blood of Christ that has been poured out for all who believe. And that is what gives us this full assurance to know that no matter whatever we have done, we can be fully forgiven. We can walk boldly, confidently, in sure standing into His presence. And we, in a few moments later, celebrate communion. That's what we're celebrating. We're celebrating this living way, this bold assurance, this firm standing that Christ wants His fathers to have before Him. And that He has planned from eternity past, or in eternity past. But there's, some, there's a second part to the standing that is really critical, the passage I want us to see here. It is a, um, it's an interesting piece, I think. It's that as followers of Jesus Christ, we do not share this standing in isolation from other believers. We share it as a community. We share it as a group of followers. We don't share it alone. We share it together. In verse 19, the writer addresses the audience as brothers, reminding them that they are part of the family. And in the, in the six fairly short verses we have, let's notice what he doesn't say and what he does say. He he doesn't separate himself from his audience, and he doesn't separate his audience into groups. I mean, this letter is going out to different regions, to different ethnic groups, to all kinds of different people. He never says you, he, you know, separating himself from them, and he never divides them up. He says brothers. He says we, us, or our, 14 times. 14 times he takes the step 
to kind of bring in this collective idea to the people of God. And it's funny, because in the Greek, it's really just one sentence. And so 14 times in one sentence, he uses we, us, or our. He's trying to get in their minds and thereby our minds. You are a community of faith. You are the body of Christ. You have been knit together, brought together, molded, shaped into this, this living organism by which God moves in the world. You have, um, you were, together you were sinners under the wrath of God. Together you were brought at a, bought at a price. Together you were redeemed. And now together you are beckoned into God's courts of praise. Sadly, too many of us, I think, fall into a very modern trap of thinking in our, about our lives and our faith solely in individual terms. We think about what God is doing you know, just in our life or, or we kind of you know, go to one extreme, which is just all I need is me, Jesus, and the Bible. That's it. You know, or you know, we say, all right, if I can just wa- listen to God, on the, listen to you know, a Bible preacher on the radio, I'll be all set. That's all the Christianity I need. You know, and, and it's sad because this is a, relatively speaking, newer development. You know, if, if you study history, you know that a lot of times you know, there's a problem and someone comes up with a solution to the problem and that solution then creates new dangers. And, and I think we've seen that you know, in the last you know, uh, generation or two. You know, evangelists and pastors were right and sometime past to notice that there was a great deal of nominalism in the churches. That you had all kinds of people that they thought they were Christians because their parents were Christians. Or they thought they were Christians because their spouse was a Christian. Maybe because their friend was a Christian. Maybe because they went to church it, it, it's a few times in their life so they figured, oh yeah. Or because they lived in a Christian nation. They said, well, I must be Christian. This is a Christian nation. And so kind of to combat this trend, you, know, you, you talk, this language developed of saying, hey, have you accepted Christ as your personal Savior? And, and the same rhetoric is used today. Have you accepted Christ as your personal Savior? And there's, and there's the beautifully wondrous element in that, that yes, everyone needs to decide for themselves whether they'll surrender their life to God and accept His work on the cross. I can't do it for you. Your parents can't do it for you. Your friends can't do it for you. Every one of us needs to do our own business with God. But the corresponding danger that I think has been helped to seep in through that has been an idea where we become isolated believers thinking that, that it's just us and God rather than realizing that we worship God and come to God in a community of faith that is to worship Him. Since we are the body of Christ, we need to live like the body of Christ. If you, if you, you don't have to flip over. I'll just go to it. You know, in John chapter 13, we see a great example of this. Jesus is addressing the disciples. And you know, with what little we know of the disciples, we know that they were actually a fairly diverse lot of themselves. You know, they, they, they probably had some very different political ideas. They came from you know, different areas within um, the, that section of the world. They came from different classes. Kind of things that often divide believers today, don't they? And, and so there's this diverse lot that we see there. And here he's writing in, in um, John 13, verse 34, he says, A new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples. And so a distinguishing mark of the Christian is to be how they love and interact with other believers. I mean, if you want an example that will take up the rest of your day, open up a concordance 
um, and, and look up one another. And you'll spend the rest of the day looking up all those verses. Tons of verses in the New Testament, one another verses, that get, us, get into us, I think, this idea that as Christians, we're called to live, worship, play together, and worship God together, that we cannot do it isolated from each other. Too often times I think it's easy for us, we, we look across you know, the, in the coffee hour on the aisle on a Sunday morning, and we see the person for what they are physically, rather than for the reality God has created in them spiritually. We see the person that maybe dresses different than we dress, or that talks different than we talk, or that, you know, maybe that we just don't think we're going to like. We see the person that we've heard talking to someone else, and we didn't like what we heard in the conversation, so we ignore them. We, we see the person that perhaps is right, has, not right, that we are right to be upset in, and that they have hurt us, they have wounded us, they have injured us, and, and now we, we feel like we're doing good if we can just avoid them, regardless of whether or not they're a Christian. They've hurt us, and we're not going to let them hurt us again. And too often I think we look at things on this just base, surfacey kind of level as if, you know, yeah, they can worship God their way, but I'm going to worship God my way. And we don't have to intersect in our lives at all. And, and if that's ever happened to you, as it, as it has happened to me, I confess, I encourage you, when you look at that person that you just don't want to be near, or when you really have no interest in whatsoever, even if nothing bad has happened, look at them and think in your mind, this is the bride of Christ that he died for. That person too, like me, is the bride of Christ that, that he has purchased with his blood. And that will give you some perspective, I think. Because the nature of our frailty convinces me of two things. One, that there are some of us in this room that I'm sure maybe do not get along with other people in this room. You, you, even among Christians, you, you have enough people in one room together, it's going to happen. And that second, some of us may have maybe tempted to say, what can I do to win? What can I do to get back? What can I do to avoid and act like they don't even exist? But that too is the person that Christ died for. That's the standing he wants, God wants us to have before him. A sure, firm-footed standing where we come in full assurance of faith before him together as the body of Christ with a guiltless conscience Worshiping Him together, even as we're beckoned to. That brings us to our responsibility. Uh, if you just want to go to verse 24 to 25, it, again, it, it kind of comes up with this idea. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. You know, the writer of Hebrews clearly has a danger in mind that he wants the church to avoid. I, I think we've seen that throughout the entire book. Hebrews is one of those books in the Bible where I think the writer is very much motivated by a danger he wants the church to avoid. And chapter after chapter gives us exhortation after exhortation to keep us from going down the road that he doesn't want us to go down. And, and in this section, I think we see the danger is, is twofold. One, he's trying to say, don't stop meeting together. And, and then the positive exhortation we receive is, hey, and when you meet together, spur each other on, encourage each other. There, there are these two dimensions to it. Be in a relationship where you can spur each other on and encourage each other. And know that that, that requires a certain type of environment. Is, is important, necessary, 
um, invaluable as what we're doing here this morning is this is probably not the type of environment where if you, you, know, you got up and you left at the end of the service today, you'd say, oh yeah, I spurred someone on today. Or I, I encouraged someone on today. There's not a whole lot of personal interaction going on in this particular environment. So, so the kind of environment that we need to be in if we're going to be in this place to, to spur each other on, to encourage each other, needs to be something in addition to this experience that we're having here this morning, right now. It, it's probably got to be a place that's a little different than the, the hellos and the, the, the brief kind of conversation you have walking down the hallways downstairs or even in the coffee hour. Generally, I mean, unless you're, you're better than I am, generally that's not the kind of environment where there's an awful lot of, so hey, what's, what's going on in your life that I can pray for? I think things might be really hard. You know, I don't hear a whole lot of that in the coffee hour. Um, I'm too busy stuffing my face, though, maybe that's why. Um, you know, that's the type of environment I think that happens in a perfect world in a small group. You know, in, in, in a calling another believer and saying, just call him up on the phone and say, hey, I can't get out today, but let me, how's it going? How are you doing? How are things? How's your, how are your kids? How's your job? Can I pray for you? It's the kind of thing that happens when you, you know, call someone and say, hey, can we, meet, can we meet at Starbucks later? I would really just love to talk. How about we meet every other week at Starbucks? Kind of thing that happens when you have you know three other couples over your house, you know, and you cook and you and you generally just talk about what is God doing, what is going on, and you share each other's burdens. It's a specific type of environment. And yet I find myself afraid as I survey you know the cultural scene around us that there are many people that are not taking advantage of those kind of relationships, that are not putting themselves in the situations to create those relationships. Survey done by the National Opinion Research Center in 2004, the University of Chicago. They revealed that Americans today are less, have less people that they confide in than in past generations. In 1985, the average American had at least three people in whom they would confide about important, serious, or difficult matters. In 2004, that number had dropped down to two. Perhaps even more striking, in 1984, only 10% of Americans would self-identify as having no close friends. In 2004, 24.6% of Americans say they have no close friends. One in four. One in four Americans feel as if there is no one in their life that they can go to when the chips are down. And the thought that that could be true of this or any church terrifies me to death. Because despite living in this part of the world, I don't know about the rest of you, but most days I feel like life, even on a good day, is incredibly hard. Whether it's worries about the economy or and how you're going to put food on the table, whether your job is going to be there, worries about where our country is going, struggle over how to witness the family and friends that are far from Christ, about how to, how to live boldly for God in a culture that is increasingly antagonistic to Him. Life is hard hard. And if we do not go forward in our lives together in these kind of relationships, I don't, understand, I don't know how we're going to go forward at all. Yet perhaps there are some of us, like my family of origin, that we don't want that kind of responsibility. We, we, we avoid those kind of relationships that have that kind of intimacy. And maybe it's because there was a time in our life that there was someone that we trusted and we, we gave them a lot of trust and they broke it. And we really don't want to go to that place again. Maybe it's because, you know, quite frankly, our life is just really busy. 
And we really don't, and we don't really feel like we have time to even just pick up a phone and call someone or to get involved in some new way. We've got enough things on our docket. You know, maybe it is because, you know, there's just a lot of people when we go into church, we love going to church, we, we believe we've got to go to church, but when we look around the room, we say, I don't like a lot of these people. I don't think we'd get along. It's a point of disclaimer. I feel that every time I go to a pastor's conference, all the time. Like, I don't think I get along with you people. Uh, but I go. So, you know, there, there are a lot of objections we can marshal to this idea. And, and if we look at the text, I think the text brings up an answer. And it's a harsh answer, but I think it's the answer that the text suggests. It's not about us. It's really not. It's the best line in Rick Warren's entire book. It's not about you. It's the first sentence. It's not about you. You know, so many of us, we come up with the reasons that we can't be involved, the reasons we can't have intimacy in relationships, the reasons we can't have take on this responsibility that God has beckoned us to spur other people on, to encourage them. And so I think it's because we approach it with a what can I get rather than what can I give kind of mentality. You know, so many people, you know, we, we're apt to go to a church or a youth group because we can get something. We're apt to stop going to a small group because we didn't get anything. We're apt to do whatever it is because of what we can get. I rarely ever hear someone say, hey, I'm so excited about this new opportunity. I can't wait to give everything I have to make it better. Generally don't hear too, lot, too much of that. Not that someone's not thinking it, but I, it's not generally the first words out of someone's mouth. This idea of what can we, how can we spur, how can we give. You know, um, I mean, I'd encourage you as, as we leave today, take a, a long, hard look and do something that we generally don't do because when we leave here, if you're like me, you're probably just thinking about where you've got to go next. Take a moment and look around at the people around you and just pause and think that they are the body of Christ, that they need you. This text says spur them on, encourage them. And, and, and maybe you're thinking, hey, um, I didn't grow up in a house like that. That doesn't come natural. It doesn't come natural to me either. But it doesn't have to come natural to say, my job for the week is I'm going to try. I'm going to consider, as the text suggests, how I might do that. Whether you know my ministry of encouragement can be writing a card or if it can be sending an email or meeting someone in the hallway. And the funny thing is it doesn't even really need to be someone you really know very well. Some of the, the, the more memorable encouragement I've gotten is from people I barely know who've just come up to me or written me something and said something, and I'm thinking, I, I got a card. I don't know who it's from. They wrote their name, but I really don't know who that is. Sometimes that's the best kind because you, you, you can feel the sincerity in where they're coming from. You know, I think about the, the church work project we had in the fall that I think they're going to resurrect. Um, you know, we had this church work day in the fall, and there's like over 100 people out here on like this beautiful, I mean, it was a beautiful day, and there's still like over 100 people out here. And... Um, and we had, you know, and I was wondering, why did all these people come out? And they were, you know, people, you know, from, you know, young kids to, you know, kids in youth group to small groups that decided to come together, all the way up, age range, people from as far as Marshfield to, you know, Quincy, all the way in between, people were here working. And I would guarantee you that if we would have just posted in the bulletin all the tasks that needed to be done in the church on that Sunday and said, hey, when you get a shot, stop by and work for a few minutes, none of them would have been done. Maybe a few. I work here, and I wouldn't have done them. Okay? I mean, really. And yet these people, why did it happen? Because they said they, they did it together. There was, excite, there was this inherent excitement to call other people on the phone and say, hey, let's go do this together. Let's, they were spurring each other on. It wasn't dramatic. It, there was not a miracle pop flare. It was, hey, let's just do this together. I'm going to encourage you to come with me and work. And people did it. 
that's, that's this idea of community that I think you know, um, we're, we're, this, this passage is trying to give to us. We come to Christ as the people of God. Redeemed, set free, loosed from bondage, death, and entered into communion with God together. And as the body we need to, that has this standing, this free, full, assured standing before God, we need to take upon the responsibility that, that standing demands and say, we will serve the rest of the body as the love of Christ compels us. Since we are the body of Christ, let us be the body of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your presence with us. We thank you for the, the life and the death and the resurrection that you went through that we could come to this table that we're about to come to. We thank you for the peace that you have bought us by your shed blood. And we thank you, God, for this spiritual reality that is so hard for us to live out in our flesh. But God, we know it is possible. We see it in Acts 2. We see it in Acts 4. I have seen it firsthand. God, we know that there is the possibility to live this glorious church life in community. And we pray that you would work in us by your Spirit more and more to make that a reality here on the South Shore. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.